there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. This month kicked off a 12-month-long strike by the British coal industry, while on TV, an equally dark time began with the premiere of Kate and Alley. Just when you think you're all by yourself, you're not. In Manhattan Beach, California, teachers of the McMartin Preschool were charged with satanic ritual abuse of their young students, part of a growing and deeply weird obsession with satanic cults by mainstream America. All charges were eventually dropped. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Starlight Express premiered, Speaking of Satan, proving that his particular deal with the Dark Lord was still firmly in place. And finally, in a move that would one day directly lead to Rosie Perez's most intolerably annoying performance, a New York police detective gave a waitress half of his $1 lottery ticket as a tip the day before winning $6 million. You gotta love a story like that as a way to kick off March of 1984. Hi everybody, I'm Drew McWhinney and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you, sir? This month has been freaking insane. This might be one of the densest episodes we're ever going to do. And it starts with a very special tip of the hat to a man we just lost last week, the great Burt Reynolds. The 80s would not have been the same without Burt Reynolds. He was endlessly likable, funny, charming. He guys was in so many bad movies, but that doesn't really matter. He will be remembered as a, an iconic, lovable uh, old school superhero rest in peace burt reynolds thank you for all the memories and the way you uh didn't take yourselves too seriously uh i think a lot of uh, movie stars and people in general could take a, a good lesson from you in that regard in some ways even though the movies he was often surrounded by were were not as good as him sometimes i feel like he kind of created this style of acting and an attitude on film that we see really prevalently now in things like the Marvel universe, where there is both a wink about what you, the audience know, and also a commitment to what he's doing on screen. It's a balance that I think Burt played really well. A young Burt Reynolds would have fit beautifully in today's blockbuster landscape. The The thing that I love about young Burt is that sort of joy of being in movies. And one of the ones I went back and watched that I dearly love, and I know it takes a lot of shit, but I love it. Long last love the Peter Bogdanovich film. And part of the joy of it is that they recorded all the musical numbers live on set. So it's all them singing while they were actually doing the dancing. And a lot of it is not technically very good, but it's exuberant. And I don't think Burt Reynolds has ever looked more like he's at a party and having the time of his life than he does in that film. It made me really happy to watch that. Well, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember liking switching channels a little bit, but 
Uh, I think his best film of the eighties might be a film we won't get to for a while called Breaking In. Yeah, I can't wait to get there with you. Yeah, and uh, we have trashed many Burt Reynolds films, and there are others we will soon be trashing. But I hope uh, everyone out there who listens to this show understands that even if we trash some of his movies, we will always have a lot of affection and respect for Burt Reynolds. And damn, he will be missed. So this doesn't technically constitute a a mistake that we made, um, but one of our listeners reached out after hearing our recent conversation about Deal of the Century, Scott. And do you remember we speculated that Freakin must not like the movie based on his total radio silence about it? It turns out it's not total radio silence because a guy named Nick DeSemlin, who is a journalist who follows us and listens to the show and, and enjoys the show, actually said something about the film on Twitter a couple of years ago and freaking tweeted back to him. I confess, Nick, I love this film. Nick ended up reaching out to him because he was uh, working on a piece about Sorcerer and writing a book about SNL stars of the 70s and 80s. That book, Wild and Crazy Guys, will be in stores next summer. We have a very special preview today because Nick sent to me the conversation he had with William Friedkin about Chevy Chase. And I'm a little shocked by the quote itself. I thought he was terrific in the film. I never thought of anyone else. He had the perfect balance of sincerity, but with an underlying comic presentation. The guy is extremely intelligent, naturally sardonic, and it was perfect for the role. I'm very pleased with that film. It's a hardcore condemnation of the arms industry, which is still going on in America, and the chicanery that exists, the hypocrisy. It's a very dark comedy, and he was wonderful to work with. I had a very special fondness for Chevy. That is the first time I've ever heard William Friedkin say anything about the movie, and I'm delighted to hear that he loves it and he loves Chevy and man, more than anything now, I'd love to talk to him about it. My first question to Bill Friedkin would be, when's the last time you saw it, sir? Yeah, <laughs> I, I would love to know if he screened it recently and what his feelings are based on just the filmmaking. Like, I think he was under the gun in a lot of ways. But anyway, that remember the title of that book, Wild and Crazy Guys. It's about all the SNL actors of the 70s and 80s. Nick's got it coming out next summer. Thank you, Nick, for sending that to us. That is amazing. Very cool. All right, Drew, now we're going to go live to Gene Hackman in his agent's office. I'm Gene Hackman. Uh, Gene, um, I'm happy to see you. Yeah, Yeah, listen, listen. uh, I don't do a good Hackman, but here's the thing. Dustin had Kramer versus Kramer, and John Voight got table for five. And I brought Al Pacino here. Uh, he did author, author. Uh, you got any more screenplays with kids in them? Al, I, I'm not sure what Gene's talking about. Um, uh, uh, screenplays with Listen, kids. Listen, man. Dustin Hoffman did that thing with the kid, right? And that had nothing. One kid. One child. My movie had a whole lot of kids. I had kids coming out of my ears. I had so many kids in that film. We lost a few. Nobody knew it. But... I did it so good. You got to wonder now why somebody wants my sloppy seconds. Just tell me the name of the project you have for him. Miss Understood. I don't know what to say to them. Tell them the truth. Andrew, what I want to say to you is not very easy. You should have told me. Academy Award winner Gene Hackman, E.T. star Henry Thomas, and Terms of Endearment newcomer Huckleberry Fox. Three performances you'll always remember in a film about love and understanding you'll never forget. Misunderstood. Rated PG. Hackman brings nothing new to the table. The kids are fine. Hackman's fine. They all act fine. Henry Thomas, uh, and, and the main gist of the entire story, much like Table for Five, is that 
he has to break the news of, of his wife's death to his two young sons. And one of them knows and the other one doesn't. The older one played quite well by Henry Thomas of E.T. fame. And Henry Thomas is acting his way around Gene Hackman in this movie, who seems almost irritated by their role. I think the whole point of a movie like this is it was supposed to soften a movie star. I got to know Gene Hackman in the early 90s when I was a theater manager, and he'd had his uh, series of heart attacks and had retired from show business, had announced that he wasn't making films anymore, and he was out of the business. And he would just come down to the theater on Friday mornings. Really sweet guy, but also at the same time, not a guy that wears his emotions like nakedly on his sleeve, even when he ran into friends and, and family and stuff down there. Part of the problem with the movie is they're trying to soften Hackman into something that Hackman just isn't. The little kid is the one from uh, Terms of Endearment, Huckleberry Fox. And I swear that kid is like a chemical weapon. I, I was a little surprised at how blank this movie is. This is from director Jerry Schatzberg. And he, several years earlier, made a movie with Hackman and Pacino called Scarecrow. And this just feels like I need a gig. This looks like a simple enough melodrama, and let's just run off and shoot it. Here's what bumps me out about Chatsburg, though, is I think that's a guy who gets less interesting as he works. If you look at the continuum of films from like Panic and Needle Park and Scarecrow to No Small Affair and Misunderstood, that's a weird arc for a filmmaker, man. Drew, Richard Roundtree, why don't we talk very quickly about a film I had never seen before called Kill Point? 1 a.m. Assault on a police armory. 2 a.m. Guns are on the street. 3 a.m. Innocent victims are slaughtered. And an entire city reaches the point where the violence is out of control. Kill point. Boy, I love this poster. It's got a great poster. Anyway, this is a tough guy movie with no tough guy to carry it. Richard Roundtree and Cameron Mitchell are both in it, but they're not like the heads of the movie. The main badass, such as it were, in this film is played by uh, Leo Fong. And nope. It feels kind of like like the last lingering traces of the black exploitation type movie. This lacks a lot of the energy and the creativity that the best black exploitation movies had. It just bored me. And I, I felt the same way about our next movie, honestly, which it shouldn't even count as a real movie looking at it. You hear a title like this, and what I hope for is at the very least really energetic, ridiculous trash. And I did not get that from Rottweiler. Dogs of Hell. Rottweiler is a terrifying experience. It's just too dangerous to continue. They were trained to kill. Rockweiler. A government agent has the key. Only he can end the grisly destruction. But is he friend of man or Rockweiler? Actor, producer, genius Earl Owensby directs a film about dogs attacking people and if you are into crazy dogs attacking people check out robert klaus's the pack or um john lafia's man's best friend but dogs of hell is a whole lot of southern fried yip yap it is <laughs> dull and dreary and boring 
<laughs> I want that on the poster. That's exactly what it is. Hey, speaking of yip yap, Scott, what's up next? We why are we running through these so quickly, Drew? Do we have a big month ahead of us? Oh, there's there's six hundred movies, and uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time on Sahara. There is a place grander than the adventures that wait there. Only one word can describe it: Sahara. And only one girl dares to drive it. Sahara World Rally. I want to see the thing race straight through hell. Find me women who will make his bed a place of earthquakes. The romantic adventure of the year. Brooke Shields, Lambert Wilson, Sahara. We've covered some Brooke Shields films and... She was obviously uh, duped into playing roles that were probably too old for her at the time. And then when she was of age, she was snake bit. And Sahara was a mega bomb. This almost certainly derailed her film career. And uh, Brenda Starr, which came 10 years later, certainly didn't help any. Well, we are firmly in the era now of Golan Globus. They are full speed ahead and they are just cranking out the junk. And what I thought was interesting about this, first of all, you've got Andrew McLaughlin directing who, you know, we've talked about repeatedly on this show already. And he's a guy who has this folks and the sea wolves. Yeah. And he's one of these old school action guys who I think his best work comes when you give him like two old English character actors who are probably drunk off their asses and they have to like talk to each other and then shit blows up. That's what he does well. But like you said, Brooke Shields is old enough now that she's starting to play adults and she's playing adult roles. So how can we make it creepy and gross? Oh, I know. How about she gets abducted and turned into a slave and sold into sexual slavery? How about that? Because we got to keep it gross if Brooke Shields is in it. You couldn't possibly kiss. Brooke Shields is just like a tough woman or a smart woman or a competent woman. She is constantly a victim. It's crazy. The setup to this sets up a different movie, which is that it's the 20s and her father was a hot rod racer who dies and she decides her dream is she's going to compete in this cross desert race that he was going to compete in and she's going to win it. That's enough. You've already got enough to play with. And that character could have been a character where finally Brooke Shields shows some strength and she gets to play this strong character. And the first thing they think to do is she's captured and she's sold into a tribal war where she becomes a toy that's passed back and forth between men. And the love story is that one guy rescues her from another guy's slavery and makes her his slave. But she likes him. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's the message. Make sure the right guy slaves you. Yeah. And the Sheik is played by Lambert Wilson, who we all know is the Merovingian from the Matrix sequels. And it's crazy seeing young him as an Arab here. And it's supposed to be a swoony romantic role that he's wrong for. And they have zero chemistry on screen. It's easy to look at her and go, she's unprepared. The script is not great. She's not a great actor in this movie. Like, that's all true. But. The problems with Sahara started long before she stepped on that set. It's it's a shame because, you know, uh, uh, she has a very good sense of humor about her early roles and her early image. She seems very well adjusted because she deserved better. Uh, If they were going to offer her movies, she deserved better movies. Hey, Scott, guess who's one of the main co-stars in our next film? 
over the Brooklyn Bridge. L.B. Sherman has problems. Wait, more than 10 people at one time and there's no room to breathe. He's got problems you can't believe. My Albie is the politest boy in this family. Albie doesn't like problems in his life. Buy a restaurant for dumping one board and taking up with another one? Oh my God, what an uncle. Well, you know I love you, isn't that enough? No. Over the Brooklyn Bridge, a film by Menachem Golan, with Elliot Gould, Burt Young, Margot Hemingway, Burt Young, Sid Caesar, Burt Young, Shelley Winters, and Burt Young, Burt Young, Burt Young. Oh my God, I'm so happy. Burt Young looks like an angel was born <laughs> fully adult and hairy. Burt Young looks like a pile of mashed potatoes just hit puberty. Burt Young. See, I'm trying to make mine a little bit nicer. Now, Burt Young looks like a limited edition garbage pail kid that was very difficult to find. Burt Young looks like a werewolf with mange. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> again, Golden Globus country. Part of the reason movies started, there started to be so many more movies every month is because the Golden Globus tax shelter structure required them to release 70 movies a month. So this is another one. And some of their stuff was like high concepty. Some of their stuff was just like throw a couple of million dollars at a filmmaker and let him go do something. Oh, this was early canon trying to do Woody Allen. And uh, it's a guy wants to open a restaurant. It's his lifelong dream. He's dating a shiksa and his family wants him to marry a Jewish girl. Complications ensue. The film ultimately is about Elliot Gould learning how to man up and stand up to his uncle and stand up for what he wants in life. Margot Hemingway plays the the woman that he is dating it's an okay performance. I, Margot Hemingway and Mariel Hemingway to me are very different performers. She to me is not a natural actress. And uh, she and Elliot Gould here, I don't really get the chemistry between them that makes her the person that he has to throw his whole family over for. I get the the point of the script and the script is would imagine it's fairly autobiographical. It certainly feels like it was written from an authentic place of this is my community and this is sort of my life. It's one of the rare movies out of their body of work that was actually directed by Menachem Golan. There's an earlier film of his, uh, The Magician of Lublin. Is that the one? That one I really like. Like, I think every now and then he kind of put it together as a director. He's and it's one of the reasons Golan Globin's body of work is so complicated to deal with. It would be easy to dismiss them completely if it was nothing but junk and schlock. But that's not what they did. They threw money at so many different things. They've got this really crazy, varied body of work with their name on it. Speaking of crazy and varied, Drew, I know that the uh, mission statement for the podcast is that we were going to cover every major release of the 1980s, but we have on occasion dipped into super obscure stuff solely because it's important to at least mention mega obscure, but somehow fascinating movies like The House of God. Now, when we do the prep for the episode and for I'm looking at the house of God and I'm like, this is going to be like a Polish three hour Polish drama, you know? And then I, I look at the credits and I'm like, wait, Tim Madison, George Coe from the original, not ready for primetime players, James Cromwell, Bess Armstrong, Charles Fleischer. This is a dark comedy about first year medical students and in the hands of a better director, this might be a really insightful, interesting movie, but this is, I mean, it goes from dark comedy to character piece to bleak, dark melodrama. It's based on a very popular book by a, a doctor named Samuel Shem, 
about emergency room doctors and the ways in which they have to protect themselves emotionally as they approach their work. Now, the film, as you said at the beginning, barely released. It largely lived on pay cable. I show a couple of theatrical dates, so that's why we're going to talk about it. But it's the book itself is kind of infamous because when it was published, it was at a moment where medicine was making a changeover in the the entire way they approached treating patients in hospitals. And that, of course, trickled down to the way they taught people to treat patients. So the book was sort of revolutionary and within the medical community was infamous. And I would wager that still, if you talk to med students, this is probably a book that shows up in most reading lists at some point. And uh, a part of it is when they started this this teaching hospital that they are still building and they're putting a lot of money into this new hospital, um, their first resident is a guy named the Fat Man, played by Charles Hayde, who his philosophy is do more nothing. The less you do to a patient while they're in your care, the healthier they will leave your care. And that idea, which sounds like a dark joke almost in the movie, actually took hold in the like there's a real philosophy behind that. And this isn't just a joke, but unfortunately, the movie is played at a level where it doesn't know if it's young doctors in love. Sometimes it doesn't know if it's sort of St. Elsewhere or the paper chase sometimes like it. Britannia Hospital. We got to start charting doctor comedies, hospital comedies. Generally speaking, not good. It's real hard because you're dealing with life and death. You're dealing with some really dark stuff. Even Patty Chayefsky in the hospital kind of bumped up against how hard it is to wring even the darkest laughs. And Chayefsky eventually just went for the dark truth of it. What's really interesting, and I would love to talk to Kevin Beagle, our our mutual buddy, because he was a writer on Scrubs for many years. And there were lots of references to House of God built into Scrubs and throughout the entire show. So I'm guessing it's probably still considered a somewhat essential text. Filmed in 79 and sat on a shelf for three years. Then I got a note that it was mentioned in one of the books, like maybe Hit and Run, one of those books, where it was just mentioned as a UA title that was just thrown away as unreleasable. The soundtrack, the score in this movie is by Basil Polidoris. <laughs> We're going to get into this because there are some fucking wacko Basil Paladoris scores coming up this next couple of years. If if you want to dig up a really dark, odd, I mean, it's not a terrible movie. It's just really. I can see why they didn't know what to do with it. It's atonal. You know, it would be like you telling me like a PG rated joke. And then without missing a beat, you just dig into like Sam Kinison. Good luck if you want to hunt it down. It is an oddity. So now speaking of doctors on film and trends in film. Here's a movie that sort of predates Hollywood's love affair with Vietnam, which is coming. And in doing so, I was surprised by some of the notes it hit. It certainly looks like Sidney J. Fury thought long and hard about how to make Vietnam work on film in Purple Hearts. In a land of violence. Aren't you forgetting something? What? A kiss goodbye. He found friendship. In a climate of fear, he found courage. I'm not leaving you here. I'll build a litter. I'll drag you if I have to. In the battlefields of Vietnam, he found himself. Ken Wall, Cheryl Ladd. Purple Hearts.
Sidney J. Fury is a guy that we talk about a lot. He's made some very good films and some very bad films. And uh, this would be his second foray into the Vietnam War after the boys in Company C. Like Drew alluded to, it feels like a very sincere, heartfelt movie about what people go through in Vietnam. And it's also a very melodramatic soap opera about a doctor and a nurse in the hands of a more skilled director, more interesting leads than Ken Wall and Cheryl Ladd. There might be a slightly better film. I don't think it's a terrible movie. I just think it's a very basic and flat movie. What I found interesting up front was how so many of the things that became omnipresent in the Vietnam films in the later half of the decade are in place already in this. It doesn't surprise me that Stanley Kubrick was so fascinated by him. But it does surprise me that Stanley Kubrick didn't realize how many times he'd already appeared on film playing the part and had already basically done the shtick. And that's Arlie Ermey, who shows up here right at the beginning of the movie. He's the first thing we hear. And that voice is so unmistakable. And he's doing Arlie Ermey shtick. If you had asked me yesterday, what was Arlie Ermey's first acting gig? I would have said Full Metal Jacket. And I would have been way wrong. And I like seeing Paul McCrane play something different here. I like seeing actors step outside comfort zones. There's another Paul McCrane movie this month that seems like it's boom right on Paul McCrane's dartboard. This is using Paul McCrane sort of outside that that range of what he played. And I really like seeing him show up and stuff. Paul McCrane, most people would know from fame, and I just like his face. He's such a good actor with that vulnerability. A lot of it is just feels like um, a 1950s war movie, but it was just kind of upgraded to Vietnam. And it's the script's fault, too. I think the script by Sidney J. Fury and Rick Neck, and it depends on a lot of old war movie tropes. But the only thing that's been updated is now they can say fuck and there's more blood. And Vietnam was not the same war. And I think that that's the weirdest thing is he gets the look and feel of Vietnam right. It feels like he's making a World War II movie in terms of the dynamics and the way things work. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, let's shift gears most certainly to a uh, film that one of our guests recommended to us on a bonus episode a while back. One of my favorite film critics, Kerry Rickey. It's a powerful film called The Revolt of Job. It is an odd duck of a movie. So it's about a guy uh, and his name is Job and he and his wife are troubled because they have lost all of their children. Every child that they've had has died young and they've had seven kids now. Their lives are a constant test. As Hungarian Jews living in 1943, they are pretty sure that the clock is ticking. So they make this decision to take in a young Christian boy from a local orphanage. When they adopt him, the little boy's already seven, and he's kind of a plucky little movie kid who gets a sheepdog puppy, and they have adventures. And for a little while, the film is this child's eye, almost whimsical memory piece my favorite scene probably in the whole film is in the middle where this group of traveling performers comes to the village. And one of the things they have with them is a projector and they show a movie. And the little kid is just hypnotized by the idea of movies, like what they are. And and yeah, eventually the movie is about the Nazis coming to take these parents, these Jewish parents away and them preparing for this by 
giving all of their knowledge and their memories and their everything to this Christian child who won't be taken. That's what is so strange about it is that this movie that's trying to be kind of sweet and sentimental is at heart about this really heavy fucking choice that these people have made. Yep. Hungary's nomination for uh, Best Foreign Film in 1983. I had trouble nailing down this tone. At, at some point, it felt like Schindler's List, and at other points, it felt like Life is Beautiful. And one of those films I like very much, and the other one I don't. Yeah, it's definitely one I'm glad I saw. It was, yeah, it's it's a strange one, man. All right, speaking of a strange one that I hadn't heard of, but is unwatchable in every extreme lens cap. Oh, I'm sorry. The Black Room. Skanky. Just make a porn film if you want to make a porn film. Yeah. That's that's my that's my final take on it. Just make a fucking porn film. Guy and a girl, brother and sister, they run a motel. There's a guy who keeps bringing his girlfriends and whenever he leaves the room, they kill the woman. Let's move on from the black room because I've been I've been waiting on this and I have been revving up to this and I, I've been preparing for this slapstick of another kind. Now, if you two kids think you can perform some kind of miracle by putting your heads together, <laughs> I, for one, would like to see it. Tell me, how can I get America running again? I'm calling it March of 1984. This is the worst film we will talk about on this podcast. It is definitely the worst film we've seen so far. And I firmly believe it's worse than anything we're going to talk about. If I'm wrong, I will cop to it when we get there. But I don't think I'm wrong. After cracking up and hardly working, could this man make a worse movie? And the answer is 10,000 exclamation points. Fuck yes. And beyond that, how dare you do this to Madeline Kahn? It is a Kurt Vonnegut novel from 1976. It came out of the death of Kurt Vonnegut's own sister who died of cancer. Kurt and his sister had this incredible closeness that nobody understood. My research indicates that a young filmmaker who was a talent agent at the time, he was friends of the family to Vonnegut, got the rights and then turned it into a super broad farce. And he turned it into literal slapstick because the book itself is not slapstick humor. This might be the most racist movie. This Wait, is a what, what's racist. You mean when Pat Morita shows up in the flying fortune cookie? That's racist. What? It is insane, but it, it's not just a handful of like off color jokes and musical cues. I mean, this movie feels like Jerry Lewis just got back from China and he didn't sell out a, a show. And boy, is he angry. And the film is about these two twins who are born. And when they are born, they are born to the world's most beautiful people played inexplicably by Jerry Lewis and Madeline Kahn. And so they have two children and the twins are born and they won't even show the twins to Madeline Kahn. They are so immediately hideous. They are whisked away because they will die immediately. They're told the children will not survive. So the plan, as any rational parents would do, is to build them a mansion where they will live as long as they live with surrounded by servants and the parents will have no contact with them whatsoever. The setup doesn't even work. There's no attempt to ground it in even a absurd reality. The house is then populated with people like, Marty Feldman doing Peter Laurie, not 
funny just just doing a Peter Lorre. Sam Fuller doing Miguel Ferrar. Why? Picture, all right, say you love Jerry Lewis. I don't get it, but say you love Jerry Lewis as a comic actor, and of course you love Madeline Kahn. Now put like giant prosthetic foreheads on them, okay? Then cover them with some kind of wax so they're shiny. Then smear their faces with mashed potatoes, put a camera right up in their face, and say, shriek like a two-year-old, and I'll give you $100,000. Yeah, and the whole point of the movie is that they are hiding their intelligence, which is exponentially heightened level when they touch their foreheads together. But in the meantime, they they act like they are drooling morons around everybody with uh, the developmental stage of a three-year-old. And that's how they live their whole lives all the way through adulthood. It's so off-putting. Every single time they appear on camera, you recoil. The only way this movie would have worked, the only way you could ever make a movie like this work is if we are drawn into the private world of the twins so that when they touch heads, when they are in their private world, when they are intelligent, we are drawn in. We see what their private world is and we get it. Nope. Not even an attempt at that. And look, the book has some of the fear of other countries taking us over. The book has some of the Chinese stuff. The book is also prescient in ways like it predicts the death of newspapers. It is a satire. There is a reason that art exists in different forms. And Vonnegut has been so resolutely resistant to adaptation that at some point you would think that short of the more realistic, more grounded work, there's no way to do this stuff. And yet we see good filmmakers bounce off of this, like Alan Rudolph with Breakfast of Champions. That's a good filmmaker. This guy is not a filmmaker. I barely even want to give him the respect to call Stephen Paul a director. Okay, he was young. He happened to know Vonnegut. He is a talent agent, so he was able to rope in some fairly famous names, slap this thing together. Every choice he made was wrong. Oh, well, you're a young kid. Move on. Go to IMDb and look at the films that Stephen Paul has produced. I stopped at Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2. There is no justice. This guy should have, by all accounts, moved on to maybe an upscale car salesman after that movie. But no, I also challenge the podcasts that I love, like Flophouse, How Did This Get Made, or We Hate Movies. I dare How Did This Get Made. I dare If they if toys made Jason Manzoukas mad at me for six months, this would break him. I June would quit the show. You hear that, Paul Shear? Drew McWeeny and Scott Weinberg challenge you to watch slapstick of another kind. June will not make it through half of this movie. No, she won't. She won't do it. <laughs> and she'll be resentful. I, I, I know June well enough on that show to know that she would resent having to watch this movie. I am willing to bet she would make it to the first scene with them as the twins. Look at Paul and say, I hate them. I hate <laughs> them. I hate you. I hate Scott and Drew. I hate Because June is sensitive to the kind of stuff we're talking about, which is close ups of ugly, like garbage pail kid stuff. Like, look how gross it is. Ha ha ha. It's not funny, Stephen Paul. It's just gross. Tarzan the Ape Man and John Derrick. You can now breathe a sigh of relief. Canon film groups. You could take the rest of the decade off, man. Nothing's going to touch this. There are movies that are so bad that they make me regret deciding to do this podcast. This is a movie that's so bad. It makes me regret the creation of cinema. Hey, Scott. Uh... Yeah. How do you feel about Hugh Wilson? There was something about WKRP in Cincinnati that just felt a little bit different to than other sitcoms. And now that I'm a bit older, I realize because it was a little more subversive. And I think a large part of that is due to creator Hugh Wilson, who 
1984 would create a franchise that would soon come to represent the 1980s as a whole. Gay panic, naked boobs, more gay panic. Ladies and gentlemen, Police Academy. feel like we are at a, a milestone for the 80s now because the 80s always had police academy movies they are like the over the caretaker of the overlook hotel of the 80s they're built in a way that is unique to the 80s which is you just ring enough variation out of the formula oh you're bored okay maybe they go to miami or new york or wherever but they gotta go take somewhere now you can go take moscow or manhattan whatever it's as mechanically plotted as the pilot of any TV sitcom. And it does feel like a pilot. Like it sets things up in a way that, okay, maybe this character doesn't do all they're going to do in this, but you know, you're going to get more out of them because you didn't get enough out of them yet. And there's a lot of this that feels like they mechanically engineered a franchise, which they didn't. They, they really only made this as a one-off and then it was a monster runaway giant looking hit. Yep. yep. And now here's the thing. A lot of the sequels are outright just tiresome and lazy. So I approached the original and I bet you did too with a good deal of, oh, but this is the good one. And then you, and then I watched it and I'm like, yeah, that's still true. But like, this is like a three-star movie at best. And the rest are below that. Yeah. You're being generous. I think, I think the things that unfortunately didn't age well, really didn't age well. And when you talk about the gay panic, that's about the only note this has to play. There is stuff in this movie where you're like, that joke seemed pretty harmless in 1984. Now it's like, why are there so many of them, though? <laughs> that, like that, that's what struck me is why are there so many of them? Well, and ultimately, what is the joke? The joke is that being gay is weird or wrong. That's the joke. I'm going to play the devil's advocate right now. Well, wait, no. The joke is that they are uncomfortable around gay guys. Well, no, it's not because then when they go to a gay club, what do those gay guys do? They block the door and clearly they're going to force themselves on them. So their attitude is that if you go to a gay club, the way it works is you walk in the door, they lock it and rape the shit out of you, which isn't how it works. And that's a really disturbing predatory view of the gay community. And there's there's stuff. My favorite George Gaines stuff in this isn't the famous scene at the podium. It's where George Gaines clearly doesn't know what the hell is going on. That's George Gaines at his best. George Gaines is so funny. He is playing this like he's in a Preston Sturges comedy. I'm befuddled, but kind of likable. And I don't know what's going on, but I have a little twinkle in my eye. Even when things are raunchy. George Gaines brings a little of the screwball comedy that works in this movie. Also, one of the things that George Gaines has going for him, and it's just built into him, is he delivers a line in a way that no one else would. Whatever it is on the page, he's going to put his own timing and inflection and punctuation onto it. And it's the reason that we love listening to Chris Walken or the reason we love listening to Jeff Goldblum. You know who George Gaines reminds me of in this movie? He is the Police Academy franchise's Leslie Nielsen. As a comic presence, they got lucky with him because he's gold and he really can't play a false note, which is why 
I'm not as fond of the big podium joke. It's the cheapest joke in the movie. My real problem with Police Academy is they're cheap jokes. It feels like a first draft. I love comedies where it feels like the easy joke was probably there once. And then they pushed a little further and they found the better joke. I got a counterpoint. A lot of it is regressive and kind of gay panic and mean. But I also think there is a little bit in this movie that is kind of progressive. I looked at it now and I thought the bit at the end of that joke where Gutenberg sticks his head out in most comedies of the era, Gutenberg's next step would be, it wasn't me. It was her. She did. It. But he kind of smiles and tucks away. This is the high watermark for the series. That's sad. That's really sad. There's lots, lots of funny actors in these movies. I hate Michael Winslow in this movie. Hate. Oh, man. Hate, 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 hate. I hate every second of it. And it wasn't funny in 1984. And I'm prepared to go on the record. It wasn't funny then. It's really not funny now. It's funny in a kid's show kind of way. Okay, but it's a rated R movie. Couch that around nonstop blowjob humor. I don't get it. Who's that for? It all feels very individual. There's no chemistry between any of the actors. There's no like ensemble type work. No, it's modular. It's all sitcom. It's all like they had a board with index cards and each index card had a joke and they didn't give a shit about a story that went around it. The story is Mahoney wants to get thrown out and he can't. Within that, it's just let's just be shitty while we're at Police Academy. And again, it feels like a first draft. It feels like somebody knew that that was the beat that should be there. Hey, what if at the end they're actually pretty good cops? One of the things that really flabbergasted me is there's almost no Tackleberry payoff. He isn't in the climactic ending of the movie where you would think he'd finally get to use his gun and finally get to be – they really didn't know that Tackleberry was going to be the center of these movies and barely use him in this one, which I didn't remember. I didn't remember that he got shoved to the side like that. Yeah, it feels like something was cut. The final thing I want to bring up, forget about the gay panic stuff for a moment. I was startled by the open racism towards Bubba Smith. Startled. I forgot that it is presented as not only normal, but fairly unimportant that they are blatantly, violently racist to him when they talk to him. It's startling. And I did not remember how normalized the racism was in this movie. Yeah, ultimately, Bubba Smith is presented as the one that is right. But there is an acceptability to the language that shocked me. How much punishment does a guy have to take to be right in Act 3? That's not cool. And it it feeds into the same exact joke with the Hooks character, played very well by Marion Ramsey. It's one joke is that she talks like this. And then at the very end, when she has to be heroic, she kicks a guy down and says, don't fucking move, dirtball. All right, that's a 1930s joke. She does a fine job with the one joke, but in order to sell that joke, she has to be screamed at in her face a lot. And I don't think they thought it was racist, but it sure doesn't play fair. But there are a few things about this movie that I do like. Very iconic 80s villain, G.W. Bailey. He, uh, like George Gaines, especially in this one, uh, he gets a lot sillier as the sequels go on. But G.W. Bailey in this is told you are playing a mustache twirling villain who just wants to mess with the heroes. And I think he does a fine job of that. I don't think the material is very good, but uh, kudos to G.W. Bailey for at least trying. 
I'm less enamored with it now, and I'm I think I am less tolerant of it now than you are. I think Hugh Wilson's film career versus WKRP is really kind of awful. Well, dude, it goes back to what we talked about. Sometimes you could excel on the stage and then for whatever reason, not lack of talent, but it just doesn't translate to screen. WKRP is great, but so far his uh, film record with us is Stroker Ace and this. No, thank you. Scott, this is a remake of one of my very favorite films. So let's get into it and talk about Against All Odds. He made you feel the beauty of love in an officer and a gentleman. Now he makes you feel the fear of murder for love. From director Taylor Hackford, Against All Odds. Rachel Ward is the prize. Jeff Bridges is the part. James Woods is the man who will kill to get her back. Against all odds, rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. This is Jeff Bridges and James Woods. But it also has Rachel Ward. Yes, it does. And I never found her all that talented at all. Ooh. But Jeff Bridges is good, and uh, this movie could have lost about a half an hour, and I'd have liked it a lot more. How about that? Again, not always fair to play the comparison game, but it is a remake, and it's a remake of Out of the Past from 1947, which stars uh, the great Robert Mitchum. The original film is remarkable. Every single line in Out of the Past is a firecracker thrown back and forth between those people. It's a terrific movie. It just crackles all the way through. I can't quote a line of dialogue from this film. I don't give a shit what anybody's talking about in this movie because there's nothing interesting about any of it. It's the same plot, but played out against a different world, the world of professional football and sort of money in Los Angeles. Uh, the way they set everything up and set it into motion, the stakes are so wrong and the characters are so uninvolving. I don't care by the time he gets to Mexico and meets her. And so none of that stuff fires. None of that stuff works. And if that doesn't work, nothing works. The original novel that this was all based on is called Build My Gallows High. And there's a great line in Out of the Past when Robert Mitchum is realizing he's going to fucking die because he can't let go of Jane Greer. And his attitude is great. If they're going to hang me, build my gallows high. Do it because she's worth it. Nothing in Against All Odds indicates that she is worth it or worth much of anything. She's kind of a drip. She has zero loyalty. There's zero heat between them. And so if your film noir femme fatale does not bait the hook properly and drive this man mad, then he's not going to stay in the middle of all that. I would have walked away 15 times and against all odds. There's zero reason Jeff Bridges keeps staying involved, except he has to where the movie's over. Yeah, I, I will. I think I like it a bit more than you do, mainly for reasons like this. The big baddie is Richard Widmark. Some of his cohorts include Dorian Harewood, Alex Karras, Saul Rubinek, and the awesome Susie Kurtz, who's only in it for like two scenes or three scenes, but she's great in all of those scenes. Jane Greer is in this, who plays the woman in the original. I'll leave it to the noir junkies, but there are, I believe, two other actors who are in Out of the Past who also pop up briefly in this. One to very good effect as an ominous thug. Again, I think if you trim, all right, we have a cool noir story with two hot young actors. And so if we dedicate a good portion of what should be cut 
like a good 15 minutes to them just staring at each other at waterfalls or making out in bed, then it it's, makes our movie a little more smoldering. But no, it just makes your movie longer and a little bit more sex filled. And so what's the only reason we remember this movie? What's the only reason we're still talking about it? song is that song was so much bigger than the movie and this is something that we're starting to see at this point in the 80s where because soundtracks were so important to the release of films and there's so much attention focused on getting the right artist to do the right song there were moments like this where the song dwarfs the movie and ultimately the movie existed simply so that the song was attached to something taylor hackford had that happen a couple of times because i would argue the same thing happens with his next movie white knights Say You, Say Me was a giant song, and you would be hard-pressed to get most people to remember that it was connected to a film. We move to one of Paul Newman's lesser-known films, which he also directed, and it's called Harry and Son. Harry thinks the kid should stop horsing around and get a job. You wash cars. Nope. I wax them. I polish the chrome. I treat the leather. Get yourself a real job. The kid thinks Harry should stop the ball and start horsing around. Oh. <laughs> what a swimmer. Paul Newman, Robbie Benson. Ain't this nice ambiance to you, bye? Harry and Son, a couple of heroes for the 80s. Rated PG. I kind of like this movie. I, I had a decent time with it. I think that it is a very small film. I, it took me a while to get my head around what I thought the movie was. You know, he's playing a widower who he's living with his adult son. His son is he wants to be a writer. He's also kind of a a dreamer. His work ethic is non-existent. It drives Newman crazy. And it's really about sort of having to come to grips with the fact that your kids aren't going to live your life, no matter how well-intentioned you are in trying to lay that down for them, that you have to find some way to support and love what your child is, not what you want them to be. And I think it gets to that really beautifully. There is a scene in this film removed from the movie itself and removed from whether or not I think Robbie Benson's a terrific actor. I think he is not. This is maybe one of my favorite young performance of his, mainly because of Newman bouncing off of him. I think Newman comes at him over and over as an actor in a way that forces Benson to do some things we haven't seen. The scene that comes between them late in the movie where Benson has been submitting material and trying to get things published and he's in the car with his dad And there's a letter that's come to the house and he tells his dad to open it. And while they're driving, his dad opens the letter and he reads it. And it's his first piece has been accepted for publication. And there's a check. And there's a moment where Newman stops and he turns and he looks at him and he looks at him with different eyes. And the way he plays it, just as a father, I can tell you there is such honesty and such a beautiful moment in that that you suddenly see your son as a person. And who might be something and who might be okay on their own and everything you want for them came true. And that is so beautifully done in Newman's work there. And the rest of the movie is okay, but it's one of those films where, man, you talk about a scene between two actors justifying almost everything else that happens in a film. And for me, Harry and son was worthwhile for that, for that moment. A lot of times in these tearjerkers or domestic dramas, a lot of it feels very push button. You you could dismiss this as, okay, here's Paul Newman trying to be a bit more sensitive as a widowed father. And uh, is he going for an Oscar nomination or is he just trying to prove that he's not just a tough guy? 
And that's all true, but there's a lot of also sincere moments to this film. See, and Newman directed so rarely. Certainly Redford made a bigger career out of it, but of the two of them, I think that Newman's work as a director is more personal. The idea that it's Paul Newman, tough guy Paul Newman, who directed Rachel Rachel or Harry and Son or The Glass Menagerie, that says a lot to me about who Newman really was and about what was going on inside him. And there is a a real delicacy and a a love that is built into these films that for the other actors and for the characters that I think speaks to Newman, that there was a lot of sensitivity and a lot of real beauty in him. And that gruff exterior that he plays so beautifully in this film hides this lovely, poetic, strange man who I think gave us this film. Another film that is deep and heartfelt, touching father-son story, Tank! I do believe I got you covered. Can I go with you? I can't sit here no more. Jump on. Light out, Billy. I'm coming to get you. You're crazy. You're going to get us all killed. Zach Carey won't tread lightly on the men who took his son. Tank. I showed this trailer to the boys in front of something. We were watching movies and I've started putting trailers in front of things and we've finished the trailer and Alan went, oh my God, that's the longest movie I've ever seen. Not only did I see Tank in the movie theater, but I dragged my sister to see it the weekend after, and she hated me. And for years after that, when I said I wanted to see a certain movie, she'd be like, yes, no. And then if I argued, she'd be like, oh, is it going to be better than Tank? I'm with your sister. What were you thinking? <laughs> Tank is a, a an army recruitment film starring James Garner as Sergeant Major Zach Carey. And he owns a Sherman tank. What he does is ships young soldiers into shape, except when the local cops, G.D. Spradlin and his lackey, James Cromwell, put his son in jail for trumped up charges. He takes his tank out of mothballs and raises holy hell and does bad things with his tank. Breaks his kid out of jail with a prostitute played by Three's Company's Jenny Lee Harrison, and they try to hightail it to Tennessee before the racist sheriff can destroy the tank and the three people inside it, apparently in this comedy. Already, there's a weird misunderstanding of how anything would actually operate in that small town that makes the comedy they're trying to put on top of it even weirder and more off-putting because, dude... You want to talk about like police academy jokes that haven't aged well. I remember Tank being somewhat amiable, uh, if not kind of hayseed. There is some really vile racial epithets in this movie. And James Cromwell as the sadistic pimp deputy is a crazy role. Some of the shit that comes out of G.D. Spradlin's mouth it is crazy. And I get it. He's the villain. He's supposed to be disgusting. This is a family comedy where there's a running joke where somebody, having misunderstood the name of the Posse Cometus Act, repeatedly calls it a Pussy Communist Act. And that's the level of humor in this family comedy. Now, it's got a weird racial hook, like Drew said, because there's a lot of stuff where this Bradlin character is out and out racist. But then there's a long, pointless sequence in which a 
a black army cook seems very angry at James Garner. And then James Garner has to, like, touch this black chef with his scepter. Wow. It's really unpleasant. I don't even understand. The third act of this movie deals with them trying to get out of the state in the tank. All they have to do is get across the state line and then all of their problems are magically solved and all of their legal troubles go away, I suppose. All they have to do is get their tank across this finish line and it turns into this bizarre folksy Sugarland expressy everybody's at the finish line waiting for them to get across so they can cheer for them and here's who's teamed up to pull this tank across the Tennessee state line ready the governor the army the hell's angels the media well and here's the other thing I don't get is they're all standing there watching while GD Spradlin and his group are just blatantly firing on these people and using anti-tank weaponry to try and get them out of this thing and they're like 30 feet away and not doing anything. There is no higher authority in America than a, a racist sheriff, dude. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I like this movie as a kid and I want to kick myself in the ass for it. So hold on. There. Now, uh, I would like to move on to an opposite film. I am ready because, boy, do I love Racing with the Moon. It was 1943, and young men were counting the days until they would go off to war. In just four short weeks, me and my buddy here are going to be proud members of the United States Marine Corps. Yeah, this war is driving them all crazy. <laughs> Duck Hopper! You're always making your life a mess, and I'm always getting you out of it. Hops, is when did you become such a saint, huh? Huh, Hop? Sean Penn. Elizabeth McGovern. Nicholas Cage. Race with me! Race with me, huh? Racing with the moon. I watched it last week, and I think it might be one of the best movies this episode. I think it's absolutely great. It feels like it was inspired by other bigger films, but not beholden or ripping them off. It's not based on a novel, and I would have guessed it would be. It is an early work by Stephen Cloves. And Stephen Cloves... His very first, his debut. And he is a terrific writer he's terrific on the page uh you know him best probably for uh all of his work on the harry potter films for wonder boys for the fabulous baker boys he is a great screenwriter what is beautiful about this movie is it's a memory piece that stephen clovis couldn't possibly be writing from his own memory yet boy does it feel well observed the little details of the relationship between henry and nikki Penn and cage you know they're not the rich kids in town they're poor they work at a bowling lane. They're the pin monkeys. They uh, love that. Love all the production design, everything inside it. I love it. It's all a great look. And this is, I want to just touch on it real quick. This is Richard Benjamin's second feature. Uh, he directed My Favorite Year and this. And he would have a big misfire in a couple of years. But one to one, two punch, I'm really impressed by. So 1984, I'm. I'm starting to really get into film, I'm starting to really get into acting and the notions of what I consider good or bad acting. And one of the things that's exciting about the early 80s is watching this group of young actors that I've talked about kind of find their footing and figure out who they were and figure out what their voice was. And they're obviously inspired by the earlier generation of method actors. And so there's there's a lot of bravado and a lot of swagger and a lot of competition and a lot of, I'm going to be the best young actor. No, I'm going to be the best young actor. Well, here you've got two real contenders for that title. And what you get is a beautiful 
not rivalry, but you get this energy where they're pushing each other. They're both better because the other one's in the movie. Oh, and it has this great dynamic between the two of them. We're in a lesser film. Sean Penn is the the more noble and mature one. And Nicolas Cage is the moron, completely immature. There are huge shades of gray for both characters. There are moments when the Nicolas Cage character is inadvertently very wise. They're multidimensional. And Elizabeth McGovern, terrific. She is so good as the girl that uh, Henry gets obsessed with. I love the score by Dave Grusin, which feels so appropriate to the, the time. And I love the period detail. There's a major section of the film that deals with abortion, which in 1984, I was that was a, a relatively new conversational topic. And the way the movie deals with it, I think is really smart. I think it's really adult. There's a moment after it all happens when Sean Penn says to Nicolas Cage, you should have been a better man. Like that's it's a, a lesson learned and they they move on. Well, they need each other to be men. They're young. They're really young in this film. And that's that's the thing is they're both on that cusp of becoming men. And war is going to ruin these guys. War is going to do terrible things to them. And, and they're going to go over there. And when they come back, they're going to be radically different people. God only knows what they're going to what's going to happen. But they need each other. Uh, I, I love that you could see a slightly lighter side to Sean Penn, which you don't see much in the early 80s. And you get to see a a very fun side of Nicolas Cage. But they have a bit where they're just acting drunk and they're saying nonsense that two drunk friends would say to each other. There's no point to the dialogue. And I re rewound this four minute scene and watched it again. And I went, there's a little nugget of the insane Nicolas Cage that we all love. There's a little nugget of it. But he is very... Uh, very good in this movie, and so is Sean Penn. The difference between the two of them, and it really took this movie and Valley Girl and seeing them close to each other to, to nail it down for me, is Nicolas Cage had a greater capacity for anything might happen next, but Sean Penn had a greater capacity for sweetness. When he's alone with Elizabeth McGovern, there's a sweetness that comes out that is so real. I love that between them. Now, I, for a movie I like very much, to a movie... I just love Drew. Let us wax on and off about the beautiful romantic comedy, Ron Howard's epic breakout, Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah, John Candy. <laughs> From the first laugh, critics were hooked. My name is. Splash is screamingly funny, says Sneak Preview's Jeffrey Lyons. Newsweek calls it a romantic comedy that is truly romantic and truly comic. Whoa, that girl is a mermaid. You'll go splish for Splash, says Us Magazine. The best time to be had at the movie since Tootsie, raves People Magazine. Splash, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Check local listings. Hard to overstate the impact Splash had. What made March so interesting was that March was a month where several films came out that ended up becoming gigantic, resonant hits that I think ripple through the rest of the decade in terms of the career impact, in terms of the cultural impact, in terms of just how well loved they were. And one of those movies is Splash. Splash was gigantic when it came out. And it did. It changed everything for Ron Howard. It changed the way he was viewed. It changed the way we talked about him. And the moment you walked out of this movie, Tom Hanks, you knew it. You were going to be watching him as a movie star for the rest of your life. You knew it. This is a, an 80s screwball comedy. This movie could have been written in 1945 by the screwball comedy classics. Just like Bringing Up Baby or any one of those, it is just high concept. 
sincere romance, very funny actors, fast pace. I absolutely love it. It's about a man who falls in love with a mermaid, watch Splash, and just to realize how editing can help comedy. I, I think it's one of the best comedies probably of the whole decade. It's terrifically efficient. I think that it, in terms of plot mechanic, it's really tightly plotted. A big part of the plotting in this uh, deals with Eugene Levy, who is the scientist who is trying to prove that she's a real mermaid. And- what a scene stealer. John Candy, they are like the yin and yang. They're both the SCTV veterans, both amazing comedians. I love the whole running thread with Eugene Levy. I love his two, the moron twins, his assistants. I laugh every time. he. What they do so well here is all the way through, what I love about Candy is that by having him play Freddy as despicable, Freddy's the worst, but having John Candy play it, it's that fine line. John gets away with it. Candy makes everything acceptable. You are okay with it because it's him. Hanks hits the ground running here. It's such a likable leading man and is so great opposite Daryl Hannah. And, I, you know, you got to give a lot of credit to Daryl Hannah after Blade Runner. After this, she is very, very good at playing something that's not quite at home in a human skin and doing it in a way that lets you in and is somehow accessible and vulnerable and interesting. And that's not the easiest thing in the world to play. And Hannah has played it repeatedly and done it very well, but it's the two of them together. And we talk about chemistry and we talk about who does or doesn't have it. It's electrifying when they're on screen together. I have no idea if they even like each other in real life, but on screen, absolutely magnetic. You know, I think you really nailed something interesting about Daryl Hannah because she is amazing in Blade Runner. And then we saw her in Reckless, where she's given a very pat dialogue and she's not very convincing. And I think 90% of that is the director and the screenwriter's fault. She's great in this as this otherworldly creature. And she would be again in a couple of years in Clan of the Cave Bear. Yeah, this movie doesn't work if she doesn't work. And she believes it's the same thing that I love about Mark Hamill in Star Wars, that he believes the intricate details of the Star Wars world so much that we kind of have no choice. She believes that she's a mermaid. She sells so much the body language. And she also and boy, is this something that's hard to get right. She sells that she's never seen these things before. Well, I don't know what else to say. Uh, If you haven't seen Splash, it is far and away one of Ron Howard's best movies. And I knew I would still love it. I was not worried one iota. It is worth noting that this was the birth of officially Touchstone and the PG Disney. So it's a demarcation line. It's a line in the sand. They, as a company, finally embraced the identity and created a new company to do it which opens up a lot of different things that we're going to see over the rest of this decade that are now part of that Disney family that couldn't have been before this. Part of what is interesting about the show to me is the context, is putting these things side by side and realizing what came out when, because I have trouble sometimes penning down when certain things happen in my life. But the next movie we're going to talk about changed my life. And I find it very hard to believe that it came out the same month as some of these other films, because it does not feel like it belongs with these other movies. It is singular and exists in its own world. Hey, baby, you need a ride? Meet Otto, master repossessor of cars. I'm going to have to torture you. He meets the weirdest people. Let's go do some crimes. And stumbles into the strangest situations. You think it's too late for us to get romantically involved? But nothing could prepare him for the ultimate repossession. Wow, this is intense. Repo Man, rated R. I love it. 
I think it's a brilliant film, but I'm reluctant to admit as a uh, 14 year old did not get it, did not care for it. Dude, I fell so hard for this movie and automatics. This was the guy that I thought I was through a lot of high school. Like in my head, I believed I was auto. I believed I was the guy that was smarter than the room and was just doing his time until he got to the next thing where he was finally going to be celebrated. Here's the crazy thing. Repo Man is from fucking Universal. That's what was mind boggling. That Universal, the studio that put out like crap like the A-Team on TV and that was as down the middle. And Universal to me always seemed like one of the squarest of the studios. There was something about them that seemed resolutely square when I was a kid. Do you think it was just, oh, there are so many movies out there with teens, Tom Cruise and this and that. Oh, Here's a movie with Emilio Estevez. Yes, we'll put it out. It's weird. We don't care. We don't care. We'll put it out. Well, who was Emilio Estevez at this point? He was nobody. And like, I've got to assume somebody at Universal knew what they had, saw this movie, which was produced independently uh, by Michael Nesmith and uh, his uh, his production company, written and directed by Alex Cox. Alex Cox is a guy who I have been frustrated by over the course of his career because I think he is. He is wildly inconsistent, but this movie is a highlight. Forget Emilio. I could take him or leave him. He's good in this. For me, this movie is about Harry Dean Stanton and Tracy Walter. Yeah, well, Harry Dean Stanton is is a big part of the appeal. And it's the notion that this older guy who knows everything is going to take you under his wing and teach you. And I think Otto is... He's a punk, both literally in the I love punk rock sense, but also he's a punk. He's just a kid who has not accepted yet that maybe somebody knows more than he does. So bumping into Harry Dean Stanton's character and the two of them together, that is the relationship that pulled me into the film and that made the film so riveting to me. What made the film feel like it was special and mine and something that wasn't for everybody is all the stuff wrapped around that relationship, whether it's the crazy car with the alien in the trunk or whether it's the punk rock uh, world or the generic products that they use in the world to sort of bland the world out around these people. All of those little details pulled me in and really hypnotized me. And then Robbie Mueller's photography in this movie one of the great, great, great cinematographers. And his work here is so good and so seductive. And it it gets this weird, grimy, nocturnal L.A. just right. And then, like you said, Tracy Walter, a character actor who I think many of us have a love and a fondness for, is the Greek chorus at the edge of this thing. The one guy who knows what's really happening, who's consistently unpanicked about how weird the world is, and who is proven completely right by the end of the movie. That performance, that character is so appealing to me. It, for me, was the film that indicated there was this world out there and you can go be part of it and it's a real thing and you can find and I did I took this movie as a map and I went out and yeah immediately started to get immersed in it and I look back now and 15 seems 14 and 15 seems so crazy young for the things that I remember after this movie and because of this movie, but that was part of the charm of it, it was it was dangerous I probably shouldn't have seen it at 14 but Oh, man. What I like about Repo Man, in and it's because I am a little younger than Drew, and I never really got into any sort of punk culture, although I am fascinated by it, and I think it's very interesting. 
to me, this almost plays like a satire of a big budget comedy. The movie opens with him losing his job, his girlfriend. He's got no prospects. He's essentially the Bill Murray character in Stripes. And then he gets offered what seems like a low life job. And that leads to learning about all these weird secrets about the world. The movie seems tailor-made to become a cult film, and it's earned it. I don't know if I love it as much as its cult following does, but I admire it very much, and I can see why people love it. Formative. That's the word. I, I almost can't speak objectively about Repo Man because of how baked into my DNA it is at this point. And the album... One of the roommates who I loved most just as a roommate and a friend was a guy named David King, a musician, who's with a band called The Bad Plus now, one of the best drummers I've ever been around. And the first time I met him, we started doing lines from Repo Man back and forth, and neither of us said the title Repo Man. He said something, I picked it up, he picked it up. It's like, okay, this guy's gonna be my friend for the rest of my life, I already know. Like, I, anybody that would do that in a room, you I gotta talk more to. And. That's what Repo Man was for me. It was a thing that for a lot of years was a way to make friends. It was a way to sort of shorthand things. Man, just a gigantic movie. Repo Man was clearly made to be unique and different. And a lot of times, if those films strike a chord, they do become cult films. And then... A film like this one that we're about to discuss in an alternate universe be a huge cult film, but it's just awful. Orion Pictures invites you to spend the time of your life at the Hotel New Hampshire, where everything happens that could happen between a man and a woman, a boy and a girl, and a bear. Brady and John are out here fooling around with each other again. They're perverts. We're no big friends. Everyone has fun at the Hotel New Hampshire. That's a bear. That's a bear that wants you. Rob Lowe is John. Jodie Foster is Franny. And Nastasia Kinski is the bear. In the Hotel New Hampshire. Based on uh, John Irving's 1981 novel. Wait, wait, now you want to talk about like getting Vonnegut wrong in slapstick. Does this encapsulate or capture the prose of John Irving in any defensible way? Well, here's the thing. When I was young, I would have said absolutely not. Now, I would say more than I thought it did. But the things it gets wrong, it gets so fundamentally wrong that it undermines the good stuff. On the page, this is one of the most John Irving of the John Irving novels. And especially in his early work, all of his obsessions are on display here. He has a thing for bears that runs throughout his work. And Susie the Bear is a running thread in this movie. Don't get that. Don't get it. There were, there were certain things and certain obsessions and certain th- themes that he wanted to play with over and over. And there were certain ideas that worked on the page. And I'm not even sure if I totally think they worked on the page. I don't think this is one of his better books. I think it's a very John Irving book, though. It is a book where he. How f- did George Roy Hill adapt Garp, whereas Tony Richardson? Because I think what George Roy Hill got about Garp was that Garp is about the breadth of a life. And it's about the fact that. A life when you start it feeling traumatized or feeling diminished or feeling off balance 
then becomes a challenge as you try to find balance over the course of the rest of that life. Garp came out of a traumatic birth. Garp had a weird childhood. His whole life is about finding safety and security and how that's always one hair from being taken from you. And that works in the film. George Orwell figured that out. and That's the thread of the film. So all the subplots he cuts, all the little details he cuts, he prunes away to get to that thing. Clearly, what the Hotel New Hampshire wants to get to is the idea that life will challenge you and punish you, and you have two choices, stop or keep living. You can either quit and give up and just fold and be beaten by things, or you pick up and you continue. Okay, that's fine. And there's a line that is used in the book a couple of times that comes from the life of somebody who committed suicide by jumping out of a window. And there's a saying that becomes part of the family's sort of texture, which is keep passing the open windows. Not bad on the page. Somebody, Tony Richardson, it in his head that this was the wisest thing he had ever heard anybody say. So in the film, you hear it 36,000 times. It's like someone found a fortune cookie and won't stop shutting up about their fortune. And then just as a weird footnote, there's a song on one of the Queen albums from the 80s called Keep Passing the Open Windows. It was written for this. They didn't use it in the movie. And the idea that these producers had a Queen song available, as I understand it, Freddie decided based on the film not to put it in the movie. Right. Doesn't this movie takes place in the 40s? Yeah, I know, man. Whoa, where would a Queen song go? I know it wouldn't have fit at all. It's a, it, it's a weird from start to finish. And that decision may be the weirdest part of it. And this is like ironic, whimsy, ugly. It's I mean, it's got stuff about incest, and about child abuse. Rob Lowe and Jodie Foster as a brother, sister. And I'm like waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then it does. And it's just the shoe just sitting there in dog shit. <laughs> Maybe on the page you can get away with that. But the moment in a real movie you have a brother and sister who have been obsessed with each other for their whole lives who decide they're going to get it out of their system by having a day of fucking, that's a weird hurdle for any audience to be asked to get past. And they don't even attempt to get you past it. They just present it as, and then they're fucking. So there you go. I think Wes Anderson really likes this movie. I wouldn't be surprised surprised if that's true <laughs> does, or, does that make sense at all it does and i think i there is some stuff in this movie that i wish landed like there's a guy who early on in the film sort of douchebag kid that is at the school with them played by matthew modine a fantastic at playing a rotten dick when she goes overseas there's an anarchist who's part of this group that they they run into who's also played by matthew modine i guess the idea is she is drawn to this same thing in terrible people. It's not meant that it's literally supposed to look exactly like him or be exactly like him. But that's the kind of conceit that if you're going to do it, you got to really nail that and you got to figure out a way to communicate it to the audience. And instead here, I spent the entire time in Europe thinking, is Matthew Modine dubbed? What's going on right now? Wilford Brimley is Iowa Bob, the grandfather of the family, who is scared to death by a stuffed dog in what in the book worked as a running subplot and in the movie is horrifying. Nastasia Kinski as a lesbian in a bear costume. Most of my life, I never thought she was that interesting of an actor. And having watched several of her films in a short period of time, I am now a much bigger fan 
And boy, she is just left out to dry with an ugly. It's an unplayable character. There's nothing about it that plays. Um, Paul McCrane, who we talked about earlier, is in this as their older brother. And there is a scene in this movie where he is attacked by a bunch of football players and they're making him fuck a mud puddle. That is an ugly, ugly scene of bullying. And as ugly as the scene's supposed to be, I don't even think Tony Richardson gets that right. Like, he can't even make you feel how ugly that moment is. Another of Irving's obsessions, uh, early obsessions, is families that become famous and what happens to them. And it happens in Gart between he and his mother. It happens again in this family. That's not a relatable thing. That's not one of those things that we all get. And Irving, especially in his early work, wrote in a world that is rarefied and not terribly relatable. And yet he presents it as if we're all supposed to remember that time we wanted to fuck our sister for 12 years. Wes Anderson nails that a lot. Tony Richardson has no idea what he's doing. I think he realized Garp was a hit and he got the rights to another Irving book and just ruined it. Let us move on. March 1984 continues with an atrocious don't at me now, Sunday at 6, it's a galactic adventure with the Raiders of Outer Space. Relax, be cool, and whatever you do, don't panic! In the far-out future, water's more precious than gold, and the ice pirates discover more than their share of treasures. It's all yours, laddies. Robert Urich, Mary Crosby, and Angelica Houston fight the ultimate space wars. Ice Pirates, Sunday at 6 on Channel 5. There are certain titles from the 1980s that you mention, and they will, without thinking, go, I love that movie. And I'm telling you now, The Ice Pirates is one of those movies. Hey, Scott, who who wrote Ice Pirates? Oh, shit. Would it be my enemy, Stanford Sherman? It would be. Oh, Stanford Sherman. Oh, I cannot take this guy. If you were to like go around a bunch of people who love sci-fi movies and are of our approximate age and you were to go Ice Pirates, 40% of them would raise their hand and go, I, I kind of like that movie, right? Now, of that 40%, how many of them have seen it in the last 30 years? Uh, more than I'm comfortable with. That's the scary part. This feels, and, and I hate to just blame it on Bob Urich, but this really does feel like somebody got the bad idea that this could be like a pilot for a, a TV movie that could be spun into a series. Hey, let's do a comedic version of Star Wars where chunky looking robots keep punching each other and falling down. Really bad racial humor. It feels like it was written for the laugh track to interrupt every once in a while. I feel like if I were to walk up to Angelica Houston in public and mention Ice Pirates, she would punch me. I don't like many of the post-Star Wars space films that were clearly influenced by Star Wars because I think most of them miss the point. Doesn't have to make any sense. It doesn't have to be consistent. The world doesn't have to work. Two things that the film is mainly remembered for, one of which I will give it credit for being clever, but it's not the space herpes. It's a joke about the alien and alien, and they say space herpes as if herpes is something that gets legs and walks away in act three there is something that is legitimately clever involving a time loop and the character's children that moment could work in like Spaceballs, which is a funny sci-fi comedy but the entire thing feels like it was shot on corman sets with two lights and it's just very ugly all all this production design is just like twisted metal everything looks like gray 
boxes. It looks like a hardware store. None of it's funny. And and if the, this movie holds some like scant nostalgia value in your head because you liked it when you were 14, leave it that way. What it is about Stanford Sherman films that people have this memory of them that is very different than what they were or actually were. This and Krull both have way better reputations than I think they deserve. And I think this one makes Krull look like Conan the Barbarian. This is bargain basement garbage. I would like to take a special moment to shout out to William Bibiani, who says that he believes that the entire Marvel Universe and Guardians of the Galaxy owes its existence to ice pirates. I'd like to take a moment to say, Bibiani, you're a madman because that is some straight up bullshit. Insane. Oh, that's like saying uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't for heartbeats. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. no. Let's let's just move on from one sloppy misfire to a weird misfire from the director of Urban Cowboy, James Bridges, and it's called Mike's Murder. Turn off the lights and remember with me, Betty. Mike's eyes. When we were together, he'd say we were the only couple. Mike's smile. I looked up in the sky and saw the moon is full. And I thought of you. I did everything he told me to do. Mike's touch. There's nothing I could have found out about Mike that I hadn't already suspected, but I didn't care. Mike's murder. No one is innocent. I think I like it a lot more than you do. It is broken, but boy, do I like it. Apparently, this was uh, originally meant to be told in reverse order, and there were uh, test screens that did not get it. And so James Bridges recut the film and made it a much more conventionally constructed narrative a man who is eventually murdered and then a woman he slept with i believe once several months ago delves into very seedy la underbelly stuff i don't know how it would work the other way i know that they've said for years that they can't reconstruct it or that the version isn't out there and then james bridges had passed away his companion was still around and said that he had a print of the film that was cut the bridges way his companion passed away several years ago. I don't know where that print went, and I would love to help track it down because I am very curious to see what another version of this film looks like. The way it works now, so Deborah Winger plays Betty. She works in one of those windows where they have the pneumatic tubes that sends the uh, stuff out to you in your car. And I love that little detail. There's something about her. Yeah, there's doing some the, there is some nostalgia right yeah. there. <laughs> Although it's funny. I mentioned that as nostalgia, and then like half of our followers uh, mentioned to me, no, I live in the South. They still have those everywhere. I use them every day. Oh, yeah, they still have them in Texas, and I think here in Philly, they're, they're still pretty, but they don't look quite like... Yeah, I haven't seen one in years, and I I loved seeing that. That was such a great touch. I think my main problem with the movie is that the guy who plays Mike, he gets way more screen time than he needs for the uh, ostensible mystery to take place, and he's just not an interesting actor. I kind of hate Mike, and it's one of the things you want to shake, Betty. You're like, why this guy? And that's part of what I find interesting about the movie is, why this guy? And that happens so often in real life where you ask, what, what is it about this person that you are drawn? And we can't answer it sometimes. You can't explain why this guy. He's a tennis instructor sometimes. Probably could have been a professional tennis player, but he really loves drugs and he gets sucked into that world. So in the opening scene, it's their tennis lesson, which turned into their one night stand. Just that is directed so well and sets such a hook that I almost buy that memory has a hold on her. His world that she gets pulled into, 
I like that it doesn't turn into hardcore where it's suddenly she's like doing drugs and she's in that. It's more that she's just trying to understand who is this person that she let get close to her. I can't help but think that the opening scene, which I will give you, is is quite interesting, would have been a lot more poignant had it been the final scene. You know, if that was originally how it was meant to end. Well, and then it's almost irreversible because you're going backwards to a place of beauty through all this ugly. But there are great performances of this. Paul Winfield as the record producer who was one of Mike's either tricks or boyfriends. And it's kind of hard to decide because Mike doesn't tell us. And then I really like the performance by Daryl Larson as Pete, uh, Mike's buddy who steals the Coke with him. There's a sequence towards the end of this film where uh, Pete comes to see her and Pete needs to know, are you going to hand me over? Are you part of this? And Pete is out of his mind. He's dangerous. He's scary. Betty doesn't know anything. And Pete's lunacy when he comes to her house increases to the point where it becomes dangerous. She really is in danger. The way that scene ends is so scary and so chilling. It's one of the few scenes in a long time where there's an image and the way an image is handled that I'm haunted by. So there's stuff throughout this entire film where I, as a filmmaker, man, I wanted more from him. And I think James Bridges is a guy who we never saw the full potential of, but who clearly had enormous talent. When the film was originally in, in its original form, the score was done by Joe Jackson. And then when they recut it, they dropped that score, except for a few Joe Jackson songs, and added a John Barry score. And I think the score, even though even if the John Barry score was a late addition, it's quite good. And the Joe Jackson music is really good. It's that rare case where I understand why they did it, but both scores are really interesting. And you can't go wrong with Deborah Winger. Uh, just like you generally can't go wrong with Linda Hamilton. Uh, generally can't go wrong, but boy, in 1984, there was a good Linda Hamilton movie. And there was also Children of the Corn. In the world of Stephen King, nothing is ordinary. No one is innocent. And there is no escape from the nightmare in the corn. <laughs> Stephen King's Children of the Corn. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine. An adult nightmare. Stephen King's Children of the Corn. I think this is the first... After a long string of very good Stephen King adaptations, this is the first dud. And I think part of it is because, and I mean no disrespect to the King fans out there, the source material doesn't really warrant a feature-length story, let alone 11 sequels. Not everything that fell out of Stephen King's butt is gold. Uh, some of it is just poop. Even Graveyard Shift has less on its, you know, and even that is more interesting than this one. Part of the problem is with the short stories, especially in Night Shift, which are the earliest short stories Stephen King sold and wrote, it's a writer learning his chops. He's great early on at description and mood, and that's what made those short stories sing. It's got the same problem that most of the Stephen King stories have, even whether they're novels or short stories. Stephen King is a great storyteller who sometimes doesn't know how to fucking end a story. This doesn't go anywhere. This is, they stop in a small town. It's creepy. The kids killed all the adults because a thing in the cornfield told them to. It reminds me a lot of When a Stranger Calls, which is an interesting horror movie that is remembered mainly for the first 15 minutes. Only for the first 15. If you told most people that's not the end of the film, they'd be shocked. Kind of the same thing with Children of the Corn. And then it moves into Peter Horton and Linda Hamilton as a couple on the road. 
that is interesting for a bit. But then once they start to get embroiled in this weird uh, anti-religious cult full of kids who are shrieking and yelling and whining all the time, it gets really boring really quick. There was an original draft of this that was written by Stephen King, and then they brought on another writer named George Goldsmith to do the version that you see here. I had a chance to read a George Goldsmith interview where he talked about how much better a writer he was than Stephen King. And it's a hilarious interview. He's delusional. He really believes that this movie is about religion and about faith and about community. It's not. This is a goofy horror film that features narration by a kid who can barely read. George Goldsmith also wrote 1981's Force 5. Well, there you go. Children of the Corn, not a good film. Let's move on. Drew? Yeah, here we go. Yeah, this one, I got, I, got, I got things to work out, so let's get into it. To use a common refrain, didn't like it as a kid, liked it a lot more now, let us talk about Greystoke, the legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. In 1886, following a shipwreck off the west coast of Africa, an infant child became part of a family of apes. As he grew, he learned the laws of the jungle and eventually claimed the title Lord of the Apes. You have another family, one you have never seen. My son has returned from Africa. He is the Earl of Greystoke. He is what the jungle has made him. Now, the director of Academy Award winner Chariots of Fire brings the authentic Tarzan legend to the screen. Greystoke. The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Wow, we're in exactly opposite places because I was obsessed with this movie before it came out and obsessed with it for about a year after it came out. And I can't fucking tolerate it now. Yes, it is Andy McDowell's debut. And yes, her entire performance was dubbed in post-production by Glenn Close. What else? Oh, Robert Town wrote the screenplay, but was so unhappy with the changes that Hugh Hudson, director of Chariots of Fire, made to his screenplay that he took his name off the script and the pseudonym that he used was his dog's name, which means one of the only Oscar nominated films ever written by a dog. Uh, what other trivial tidbits do we have besides those two? That uh, Rick Baker tried to kill Hugh Hudson. Tell me why he tried to kill Hugh Hudson, though. Took so much money, so much time to get these suits to work, so much development. And for Rick Baker, gorillas were his obsession and gorilla suits making a realistic, truly indistinguishable real gorilla suit was the holy grail for him. It was something he worked for for many years. So he's offered this dream job, which is Tarzan, which is you're going to create the apes. You're going to create Tarzan's mother. You're going to create characters. They have to be characters that we can communicate with. That's what you're building. So he built those suits and spent a year plus doing it. He got to the set and the first day of shooting, they took the hero suit that was supposed to be Kala, his mother, and shot the scene where they shoot it full of arrows and it never worked right again. The disrespect shown in how Hugh Hudson shot what Rick Baker built and how he used it in the film was so profound that it almost made Rick Baker quit the business. I think it's the cinematography and staging wise. I think Rick Baker's work is, is shown off to a wonderful degree. Honestly, uh, I think it is fall down funny how up its own ass this film is. But why is it? Wait, 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 wait. Why is it up its own ass? To me, this is let us try to do the earnest merchant ivory version 
of the Edgar Rice Burroughs story, just like Merchant Ivory would do for something a bit less genre oriented. I think they pull off a lot of it. I, I, not all of it. I, I don't think they pull any of it off anymore. I The movie that you're talking about is what I was obsessed with at 14. I don't think there's anything about this movie that is either the heroic version of it or the realistic version of it. I don't think either one lands for me. Oh, man. Christopher Lambert is very good. The Ian Holm and Ralph Richardson characters add a lot. Uh, cinematography and production design, especially when it moves to England, is gorgeous. And coming off of Chariots of Fire, he had all the support in the world. Yeah, but I mean, gorgeous, you know, but a movie that's like eh, beautiful to look eh, at, that's not eh, nothing. I, you know what I mean? I'm like, less impressed by a pretty movie that I don't think has a pulse. Here's the thing. Splash is not a very well shot movie. Splash is a terrific movie. And early on in his career, there's a lot of these guys who I don't think necessarily were camera savvy, but there is such living heart to what they make that I'm okay with it. There's no pulse in this film. The only characters that I find a connection between that's even remotely interesting is some of the early stuff between Ian Holm and Tarzan in the jungle. Some of that stuff I like. I like the way it's played. I think Ian Holm's fine. I think Ralph Richardson is giving a jolly performance. I have zero idea what movie he's from or what movie he's in. It's a jolly performance, and I'm certainly entertained when he's on screen. But that performance adds some of the pulse that you think the film is lacking, I think. But I don't think it fits into this movie. I think he's in something else. I don't care for Hugh Hudson. I don't care for what he does as a filmmaker. I don't think there's any honesty to it. Oh, boy. Wait till we get to revolution. <laughs> I think everything you like, you like about what Robert Town was going to try and do. I think Robert Town's script, which is considered one of the greatest unshot screenplays in Hollywood history. What you're telling me deservedly. is John Borman. All you're telling me is John Borman would have made a better version of this movie. I get that. I agree. But he didn't. I also think ultimately... Tarzan is silly pulp. There is a limit to how serious you can push pulp before it becomes stupid. It, it's so hard to me to pull pulp off in the first place. Even just doing pulp properly is difficult. But taking pulp and then trying to make it this Oscar Beatty sort of super serious. No, this is the real way it would happen. Well, no, it's not because no gorillas would raise that child. No. Yeah, but I. If you were to say that this is the way Tarzan should be told, I would say no. But it's a way that Tarzan can be told. And considering that our last Tarzan film was John Derrick jerking off oh, to his yeah. own wife, I think that I can enjoy Greystoke. Thank you, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to move on to a movie that goes to 11, motherfucker. It's time for This Is Spinal Tap. A greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar around her neck. And a, leash, and a leash, and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't no. find that sexist? Hilarious, says Playboy. Spinal Tap sends up what the Beatles started with a hard day's night. Well, you should have seen the cover they wanted to do. This is Spinal Tap, rated R. Coming soon to a theater near you. It's so daunting to approach something that is a undeniable, redefining classic. Daunting schmaunting. It is one of the best comedies ever made. This movie, if it doesn't make you laugh, you are an alien from another planet. 
and it's weird because it is largely based on such a specific thing, which is the sort of aging British metal culture in the early 80s. Rock documentaries were still not a giant mainstream thing at this point. Right. And I think that's part of what makes Rob Reiner so brilliant is that they are mocking both pompous British rockers and documentary filmmakers. So it also has to work as just a straight farce about a band. There's not enough good you can say about how well they inhabit the skins of this metal band and how great the music is, how good they are on stage, how great they are with one another. Take everything that makes this movie great and make the songs only so-so, and you'd still love the movie. But the fact that the songs are not only funny, but legitimately entertaining is just like the icing on the cake. Watching it the other day, I was really struck by the fact that now as an old man, I watch it and it is about guys doing their best to hold on to being relevant. We, When we're young, we laugh at it like, look at these old dummies. We watch it now and we're like, I like these old dummies. The scene at the end where they finally where. They're on stage and Nigel's at the edge of the stage and desperately wants to be up there. And David gives him the nod to come up and join them. I got misty this time because is a legitimately sweet moment. I mean, and an, a sincere, honest moment in a movie that's very, very silly. But it also does touch on a few moments of camaraderie and friendship and loyalty. And it goes back to what I said, because I'm brilliant, which is. It's not just a satire of documentaries. It's not just poking fun at pompous rock stars. It's also a comedy about four rockers that you like. We are in an age now where the idea of comic improvisation is just part and parcel with the way comedies work. That was not always the case. And the idea of improvising in front of a camera while you have actual film rolling through the camera, you're burning dollar bills. That was terrifying to people. So the notion that they went into this film with just an outline and that each time they would start a scene, they knew what the character information was. They had the backgrounds that the songs existed, things like that. But the scenes themselves were not written. And so often in this film, what you get are first takes. That's magical. That rapport really exists. They're not actors that get hired to do that. They're guys who built these characters from the ground up and who have the chops to actually back that stuff up. Man, that makes a difference. And it means that when they are in the characters, they are so completely in the characters that I, for a little while, would have believed you if you told me that Michael McKean had an English accent. You can chart a direct line to Christopher Guest in this to his own great uh, improv comedies. Oh, of course. Yeah. Him realizing that, yeah, that this was viable, that this is something that you could do. We can make it sound easy. Get 10 or 12 brilliantly funny comedians do 30 takes. And if one kills you, there's your scene. Now go do that. Like, that's how they make these movies. And if you happen to know some of the countries or the world's funniest people, you too can make a movie just like Christopher Guest. Because uh, all you have to do is just point the camera at them, let them collaborate. And one of your 12 takes will be brilliant. This movie is full of brilliant jokes. Oh, yeah. And every musician in the world, every musician has talked about how when they watch this, they felt like they were watching themselves, like the the fights between the band members are real. The conversation they had with Tony Hendra, comedy legend Tony Hendra is their manager in this film, are all painfully real and authentic and yet hilarious. There's little jokes in this movie. One of the ones that just kills me is the runner about the herpes sore, the cold sore 
that's being passed from band member to band member over the course of this, and nobody ever says where it started. Or the running joke about the drummer, that joke has become so iconic. But I love that there are people that still to this day don't realize that the names of those drummers are a joke on the Three Stooges and all the guys who ended up replacing Curly. It's awesome. Like, it's a joke on a joke on a joke, and they don't care. I almost guarantee that this was a movie where I went, hey, whoa, this is scratchy and looks like a documentary and real looks like it was really cheaply made. Drew, that was not the kind of movies I watched in 1984. I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1984. So even though I didn't know it, a movie like Spinal Tap made me realize, and, and Repo Man, hey, you might not even know this term yet, but you are in the indie film. <laughs> yep. Rob Reiner, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and Christopher Guest. Holy shit. What a gift. I can't imagine the last 34 years without it. It is truly one of the greats, which blows my mind because it may not be my favorite film of the month because uh, this next film also came out March of 84. And there are very few film experiences that have blindsided me in a movie theater to as lovely an effect as romancing the stone. Ira, you miserable worm, you lied to me. You said she was a city girl, out of her element. Just get her in the map and bring him back. What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. She's got herself a partner who likes shooting holes and everything. The minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is $400. 375 in travel's checks? A deal. Romancing the Stone, rated PG. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. I cannot underline this enough. Nothing in Romancing the Stone is stolen from Raiders of the Lost Ark, except the love for a romantic matinee-style adventure movie. That's what is stolen from Raiders. No plot, no characters, no lines. Just the, oh, man, I, I want to make something like that. I believe we covered this a little bit in the Bill Roseman episode when he came on and uh, was a guest on the podcast. Bill Roseman, of course, is the creative director for Marvel Games, who just was a major part of Spider-Man, the game that's out for PS4 now. And But Bill was one of my neighbors when I was a kid and was my best movie buddy. And one Saturday, he had to work at his school for their carnival. And the carnival, if you went to the carnival, you could win whatever various prizes. So I went just to bust his balls because I had nothing else to do that day. And ended up winning set of movie passes for a local theater, which was walking distance from the carnival. He was supposed to work all day, but I was like, I just want movie passes. Want to fuck off and go see a movie? And he was like, yeah, sure. So we just left. And the only thing that we had not seen yet that was playing was a movie called Romancing the Stone. And we looked at the poster and it looked like a romance movie. It looked kind of adventure but the title and the fact that Kathleen Turner was dead center... Clearly, they were emphasizing more of the Harlequin romance type vibe in the cover. And at that point, Zemeckis wasn't as fully on my radar yet. I knew his name, but I didn't even notice it on the poster. So we get in. We start watching the movie. First thing I notice is Zemeckis' name comes up. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then the movie kicks in. And man, wall to wall do I love this script. And I want to take a moment to say that Diane Thomas would have been one of our most important screenwriters of the 80s. She would have worked endlessly. She would have worked with every giant director in Hollywood. And I truly believe she would have left behind a string of unbelievable work. Unfortunately, Diane Thomas was killed very young, and it is heartbreaking. This script was something that she carried around for five years. She was a waitress. She met Michael Douglas when he was in her coffee shop, and she started talking to him, and she told him this idea. She brought the screenplay in the next day for him. 
And he ended up buying it and making it. And it's one of those amazing Hollywood success stories where everyone who then read her script wanted to hire her. Spielberg hired her. She wrote an Indiana Jones movie for Spielberg that didn't get made. He read this and he didn't see a ripoff. He saw somebody who should be writing Indiana Jones movies and literally hired her to do the next one. By most accounts, she kind of got screwed on the sequel. My uh, history with this movie is much more simple. My mother has always been a gigantic fan of Kirk and Michael Douglas. So opening night, I knew it was going to be good. I don't think at that point I knew Zemeckis from a hole in the ground. I suspected it would just be a fun adventure movie. And we absolutely loved it. And I'm going to start. This is about the era where I started noticing audience reactions. This movie had three or four. When Afonso Aral says, is he Joan Wilder? And he opens the gate. You would have thought that people just got free money. People were not just laughing, Drew. They were clapping as if the movie was over. That's how much they loved her already. Oh, it was a huge, it was a huge audience movie, huge reactions. And of course, the idea that these, you know, freedom fighters in the middle of the jungle know her is Everybody a great Everybody reads her work. That's what's beautiful is that, and it goes to the the underlying joke that romance novels are kind of low rent and, and everybody knows her work. That's <laughs> everybody's read Joan Wilder. So I have not read Danielle Steele, but if I was in the middle of a jungle and someone said, I'm Danielle Steele, I'd be like, the Danielle Steele? Like, I know her name. I love that gag. It goes from threatening this movie gets pretty nasty towards the end, but it does have a real humanity to it as well. Danny DeVito, really good balance. He's a devil little guy, but he's never completely evil. And you get the idea. Like, I love those shades of gray characters. This is what fascinates me most about this. Robert Zemeckis was toxic when he made this movie toxic. He was at the point where he was getting ready to leave the business. He had been fired from films. He had, been replaced on stuff he had developed. Everything he had written and that had gotten made had tanked miserably. Used Cars was a failure. I Want to Hold Your Hand was a failure. 1941 was a disaster and was considered the one black mark on Spielberg's record. And the only reason he kept working, according to everybody in town, was because Spielberg kept throwing his buddy a bone. So when Zemeckis made Romancing the Stone, it was literally, I have to go make a movie that nobody else is affiliated with, that nobody's given me, that Spielberg isn't producing, that isn't a favor from somebody, and that I didn't write with Bob. I just have to go make something and prove that I can direct a movie. This was his last chance not to leave this industry. And everybody was so skeptical that even finished when he showed this, it lost him another job. You can only give a guy so many chances. And it were, if it wasn't for Romancing the Stone, we would have had... No Back to the Future and no Roger Rabbit. And it's interesting because uh, one of the complaints that I've heard actors uh, make about Zemeckis over and over is that especially in this era, he was so technically minded. He was so oriented on the camera and on getting the exact shot he wanted. And he is so communicative. Even in this movie, his camera is terrific at communicating ideas and humor and how a joke works. And he is a phenomenally gifted visual director. But he would drive actors fucking crazy because if you don't hit your mark, my shot doesn't work. And I don't care what else you do. You got to hit your mark. And it's the reason that Crispin Glover eventually drove him insane. Kathleen Turner on this film, they fought nonstop about that. And what's the only other time she worked with him, but only as a voice because she didn't want to have to be in front of a camera. Also great support. Holland Taylor, 
I, I will mention her in every movie. I love her from Bosom Buddies. And every time she's in a movie, I adore Holland Taylor. Also, Mary Ellen Trainer as the damsel in distress, uh, Joan's sister. And I love the wrinkle. I didn't think much of it when I was younger. But in this movie, a damsel is kidnapped and must be rescued. Who comes to rescue her? Her sister. That's why I love Joan Wilder. It's a beautiful character like beat that. that this woman who has spent her whole life hiding and writing about other people's adventures, her love for her sister gets her to do something that is fucking insane. Of course, she needs a guide uh, who is the manly man in many ways. But the great thing about Colton is he starts out as a very typical chauvinistic, bossy, do what I say. And she, without much effort, rubs off on him and he becomes less of a dick just by being around her. Michael Douglas, I could have took or left at that age because I thought he was kind of dull. Kathleen Turner, I already knew from Man with Two Brains. So I was already a Kathleen Turner fan. Michael Douglas, I grew to love him after this movie, but Kathleen Turner is the star and she is so great in this movie. If you've not seen Romancing the Stone in a long time, do yourself a favor, show it to your kids. Great Alan Silvestri score, phenomenal Dean Cundey photography, maybe some of my favorite of his. And one of those movies that if you ever remake it, I will find you and I will probably speak very sternly to you. Anyway, uh, we do have to thank all of our patrons, all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, next time, Rick Springfield acts, allegedly, while a bunch of horror legends get together. Timothy Hutton plays Neil Young to a caveman. Jamie Lee Curtis reads some love letters. And Robin Williams really wants to defect. Also, Scott, is this right? Is the very last Friday the 13th movie of all time next month? You'll have to find out in April of 84. <laughs>